the left is trying to create the very real risk that the court will be deterred from issuing that opinion. Mm-hmm. That's why they're showing up at people's homes. They're private residences. Thanks for joining the Kevin Roberts Show. This is a special bonus episode with one of the great friends of Heritage, one of my friends, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, Senator Lee. We have a limited amount of time, as is the case with these bonus episodes. So let me just cut to the chase and say thank you for being Mike Lee. Oh, thank you. And thanks for having me on your show today. Yeah, you bet. So, of course, we could have conversations, as we often do, about family and faith and freedom, and we will do that one day. But I want to cut to the chase because you have a book that's out, and I had the opportunity earlier today to skim it. I haven't read every word, although that will come this week, but a good graduate school skim as I was eating lunch, and I'm very impressed, which I expected to be. But what I will say, given your your typical comportment of being cheerful, is that you cover a really difficult topic, and that's the expansion of the Supreme Court with a certain sober eye, but also a plan of how to avoid it. Tell us about the book. Tell us why you wrote it. I wrote Saving Nine because I could see the left preparing to undermine one of the best institutions remaining in our government, which is the Supreme Court. Now, look, the Supreme Court sometimes makes mistakes, but for the most part, it is a good tribunal that sometimes makes mistakes, not the other way around. They want to undo all that because the left wants to be able to bring them to heel to the woke agenda of the current administration. That's unacceptable. And so I wrote a book about it. I could see that the last time the Democrats tried this, which was in 1937, they failed legislatively, but they succeeded in leaving a lasting mark on the court, one that we're still paying the price for today. And interestingly, you make the observation in one of the early chapters about the 1937 example that even though FDR failed, which is what a lot of Americans know, strategically, he sort of succeeded because you can do an analysis, as you and some other scholars have done, of the cases that followed. And it seemed as if the court was sort of giving him his way for the most part thereafter. I'm confident that's absolutely what happened. Mm. We we spell it all out in chapter four of the book, explaining how Justice Owen Roberts flipped his vote. He had great angst about it, but Mm -hmm. he was trying to prevent the court from being taken over. Ironically, in trying to prevent that, he succumbed to it. And uh, like I say, that's why we're $31 $31 trillion in debt today. It's why most of our laws are now by, made by executive branch bureaucrats rather than Congress. It's because of that one critical error. So all of that bad stuff mm-hmm. came from one threat to pack the Supreme Court in 1937. Imagine how much worse it could be today. What will that threat look like, even if it doesn't succeed? And how will that affect future generations? Sure. That's what this book talks about and how we can prevent that threat. What do you say to the the person who may be friendly to your worldview and to mine, and yet is a devil's advocate about this? The, and what I often hear, and you probably have, is, oh, come on, this is not bound to happen. How do you respond? It is bound to happen in the sense that the news media mm. seems to be behind it, the academic establishment behind it, the entertainment media behind it. In 1937, you at least had a sizable majority of the elected officials in FDR's own party who were not willing to go along with it. Today, you don't have that opposition within the Democratic Party. So uh, that doesn't mean that it's guaranteed to happen, but it does mean that unless we take active steps to resist it, to oppose it, to stop it, that we're going to lose. That's why I wrote Saving Nine, and that's why this book is so important. This book will help you win any argument about not only this, but any political topic that in one way or another relates to the federal government, to the balance between the three branches Mm -hmm. of the federal government, and the balance between the federal government and the states. This book will help you win that argument. So it's very timely. And one of the reasons it's timely is not just because, as, as you observe in the book, 
so many of your colleagues who used to be opposed to the idea are now in favor of it. But also, as some of my colleagues at, at Heritage are warning me, that if we are in a situation where Republicans win a majority in the House and Senate in 2022, there's this lame duck session where a lot of bad things can happen. Is that the only timeline in 2022 that you're concerned about court expansion? Or do you think this might happen prior to Election Day? Well, if if you take into account the possibility that the Democrats might somehow win the November elections and Which keep their majorities. To. It could extend far beyond that. Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't limit the risk this year even to the lame duck session. Okay. You can imagine a scenario in which they might try to nuke the filibuster. Remember that this uh, would ordinarily be subject to filibuster, but if they nuked the filibuster, they could get around it with a simple majority vote. Mm -hmm. That should concern all of us. If they found the appropriate window to do that, they'd drive right through it, and we've got to be prepared to stop it. Sure. Well, I'll just say, I know we want to cover some other topics actually very related to this, that it's an excellent book. I say that not just because you're a friend of Heritage and a friend of mine, but it is excellent. It's easy to read, even though it is, of course, very substantive in its legal and, and political analysis. So thanks for writing it. One of the issues Issues that is aggravating the possibility of a court expansion is abortion. And, and of course, anyone who follows politics knows that all of us who are in D.C., for that matter, those of us outside D.C., are waiting You know, every Monday in June for this Dobbs decision. What do you think is going to happen with the decision? And what do you think the response needs to be, both at the federal and state levels? So I think what's going to happen is the Supreme Court's going to follow through and it's going to issue some version of Justice Alito's masterful draft uh, opinion in the Dobbs case. By the way, anyone who's at all interested in government, regardless of how they think they feel about abortion policy, really should read Justice Alito's draft, uh, his draft majority opinion, because it's brilliant. It goes through and systematically debunks Roe versus Wade, mm -hmm. not just on a moral basis, but especially on a constitutional basis. There is no there there. The Constitution doesn't make this an issue for the Constitution, so it's reserved to the people. And the people's elected lawmakers will now have a chance to decide that as it should be. Now, I think this is what happened. This is what I hope and pray will happen. The left is trying to create the very real risk that the court will be deterred from issuing that opinion. Mm -hmm. That's why they're showing up at people's homes. They're private residences. It's one of the reasons why even before I realized the timing of all of this, I told the story of when I was 11 years old and abortion rights protesters showed up in front of my parents' home. I was at home alone. I went and, and argued with them. Uh, this is what they do. They, send, they show up at people's homes to send the message, we know where you sleep. This is unacceptable, and we should demand more than that. Yeah, we really do. I mean, it's, it's the last few weeks have been such a lesson in civil discourse or the lack thereof, that regardless of party affiliation. I think you and I would, would wish for us, for our fellow Americans, to get to a point where we can have these political disagreements, even about very serious topics like abortion in a way that's a heck of a lot more civil. But we also have been around enough to know that regardless of the specific outcome, that it's very likely that when we get to July of this year, that both you and your colleagues in Congress, as well as your counterparts in state legislatures, will be dealing with this issue. What guidance would you give to our audience, whether they're watching or listening, to what federal action should be? Uh, always we have to focus on what the proper basis of federal power is. Right. And, and it's important that we dot our I's and we cross our T's. There right. are some areas where it's clear and undisputed 
the role of the the appropriateness of the role of the federal sure. government. For example, I think first on our priority list ought to be defunding things like Planned Parenthood, ought to be uh, policies like the Hyde Amendment and, mm-hmm. and Mexico City policy, where we're going to say whether you're talking about a domestic program or an international one, the federal government's going to stop funding abortions. Uh, we also have the clearest authority, constitutionally speaking, when we're dealing with the District of Columbia or mm-hmm. federal enclaves. Many of the other decisions, most of the general decisions, should presumptively be in the category under the protection of state governments. Mm-hmm. When state governments fail to protect people, other protections could eventually kick in. But initially, this will be primarily a state and local decision. And would you encourage those listening who are or avid pro-life activists to be working with their state legislators now? Yes, now rather than later. I think it's important to make clear what the law will provide. If your state doesn't already have a law Mm -hmm. providing what comes in the place of Roe versus Wade, you ought to get your state legislature working on that right now because it's coming and it's coming within the next few weeks. Yeah. So from one major issue to another, uh, obviously abortion affects every American because of the the nature of that cultural and social problem. But another issue that faces every American or or, uh, touches every American is inflation. And while that is focused on our financial well-being, obviously, the rate of inflation is so significant in 2022 that no doubt you have constituents in Utah. We know people here in D.C. and Virginia who are struggling to buy groceries, who are struggling to literally to keep the lights on. This is not political hyperbole. The historic nature of this rate of inflation is really changing Americans' quality of life. What are the origins and what's the solution? It's something you and I haven't seen in our lifetimes. That's right. The origins really lie right here in Washington. That's right. Right here in Washington, we've been spending to the tune of trillions of dollars a year more than we take in. This is the predictable, foreseeable, and in fact, foreseen result of that kind of spending. Mm-hmm. When you just print money, you're creating what inflation is, which is too many dollars chasing too few goods. It shows up to a particularly acute degree in some parts of the country. You mentioned the D.C. area. It's right. felt acutely here, even more acutely in Utah. Mm-hmm. We're experiencing some of the worst inflation in the entire country. $751 a month is what the average Utah family is spending on the same basket of household goods relative to what they spent every month. It's a huge difference. Just the beginning of last year. It's all because of government. Mm-hmm. And so how do we solve it? The way we solve it is by stopping that kind of spending. I've introduced legislation that would require a supermajority vote anytime we want to spend money during a period of time in which inflation is in excess of 3%. Mm-hmm. We're far in excess of that. Multiples of 3% now. Yep. And we need legislation like that, creating limitations on Congress's ability to spend. One of the specific areas uh, are, are products where inflation has been obviously relevant, although there are other factors involved, is the infamous baby baby formula shortage. You've been outspoken on this, but in typical Senator Lee fashion, you've also been focused on a solution. You've come up with a proposed solution. Tell us about that. But also, maybe leading up to that, Senator, if you don't mind, give us a sense of the origins of this shortage of baby formula, because I think it's a classic case of government mismanagement. This baby formula shortage is entirely of the federal government's own creation. Mm. There's no natural shortage at issue. Our ability to produce it is no less than it ever has been. It's just that the federal government has created some market distortions in three separate areas. First, Mm -hmm. we've got import restrictions that are protectionist in nature. Second, we've got labeling restrictions that are unbelievably onerous and end up being an effective additional ban Mm -hmm. on 
would be otherwise viable European competitors simply because of onerous labeling requirements. Finally, within the WIC program itself, we're issuing vouchers. Those vouchers identify a particular brand and a specific product within that brand. And the person receiving the voucher may receive only that particular product. If they're out of something else, they're out of luck. I would lift for a period of six months all three of those restrictions under Mm -hmm. a bill I've introduced called the Formula Act. That would fix the problem. What are its prospects for passage? Its prospects are good. I've brought it to the Senate floor a couple of times, tried to pass it by unanimous consent. So far, it's been drawing objections from Senator Patty Murray from Washington. To Senator Murray's credit, she's working in good faith with us, and I think we can get her to the point where she can accept it. So from that issue, which is challenging in the near term, to one issue that that will be the last policy question I ask you before I ask the the typical last question, which is about optimism, which I think you'll handle well. And it is the issue of schools, of education. And we live at a time when educational attainment in the United States by every demographic of student has declined since you and I were in school in the 70s and 80s. That is something that ought to transcend left and right Democrat and Republican. It's something that ought to embarrass all of us as Americans. What are the right policies at both the federal and state level to make sure that students are learning that parents have rights that, in fact, maybe at some point in the near term, Americans can be proud of their schools again? First and foremost, don't ever treat parents as if they're domestic terrorists (laughs) simply because they show up and ask questions at a school board hearing. Uh, Secondly, we really do need to get the federal government as far away from primary and secondary public education as possible. Mm -hmm. When it so much as touches those things, when it sneezes in their direction, it causes problems. That's where we get problems like, uh, I don't know, CRT. That's where you get this kind of bullying from the omnipresent federal system. Uh, The the more we can work in parental choice at the state and local level, the better people are going to be. They can work in vouchers, some type of parent-directed education opportunity Mm -hmm. is always going to be better, especially for the poor middle-class kids who need it most. Sure. And when it comes to federal action, I would suspect that you would expect that to be fairly limited based on your reading the Constitution. Oh, yes. Yes. Look, I I, I don't see anything in Article 1, Section 8 or elsewhere in the Mm -hmm. Constitution that that gives us power over primary and secondary public education. Mm -hmm. And because there's nothing in there that makes it federal, it is reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Yeah. Well, I knew you would uh, hit that one out of the park. So another one that you will will be the last question for now. We'll, We'll meet again, of course. You are one of the most cheerful elected officials that we know at Heritage, and we thank you for that. In spite of all of the challenges that this country has faced in 2022, the last few years, clearly challenges in the near term. We're going to have a probably a pretty restless summer when the, the Dobbs decision comes out. Why did you wake up this morning optimistic about the future of America? The American people are basically good, mm-hmm. and it's very important for us never to confuse the state of the country with the state of our government. Mm -hmm. Our government's messed up. It's messed up because a small handful of people uh, who benefit from government largesse have concentrated power here in Washington in a way that's unhealthy and contrary to the dictates of the Constitution. But the American people themselves are good. They are the country. We are the country. We just need to realign the government with the country. When that happens, and I believe it's a when, not an if, we will all be better off as a result. So we have every reason to be optimistic. Thanks for being a leader in that. Senator Mike Lee, thanks for your time and joining us today. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed that bonus episode of The Kevin Roberts Show as much as I did. Obviously, you should buy Senator Lee's book. Follow him on Twitter, all of the social media channels. Most of all, wake up tomorrow and be optimistic about this country. Take care.